Hi. I feel like either there's not a lot of people here tonight or there's a lot of people downstairs. Okay. Um, happy Labor Day then. <laughs> Thanks for coming. So how many of you have heard the saying, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? That's a lot. Well, I've been thinking about this a lot this week, and so I looked up some pictures. Actually, Andrew looked up pictures for me. Poor guy. Um, this one's my favorite. He's saying push harder, dude. This was a four-part comic strip, but this is the end. So some sort of lubricant would be helpful is basically the gist. So in addition to looking up these great pictures, I also thought, I wonder if people, because there's all kinds of controversy about what this means. I was like, I wonder if people on Facebook think, you know, crazy things. So I posted on Facebook, because some of you might have seen, just this question, like, you know, if you know what this means, you'll get a big prize. So lots of people answered, and my favorite answer was my uncle's really good friend that lives in San Jose. And here's what he said. First, you must grease the camel really well, as you would a pig in a greased pig contest. Then get your needle and place it four feet in front of the camel and three feet off the ground. Move the camel backwards, 24 and a half camel steps. How do you measure that? Smack the camel on the right hind quarters with a riding crop used in, this is crucial, the Kentucky Derby. Any race in the 100 and some years of history will do. The camel will go through the eye faster than you can say your Bob's uncle in any language other than English. Oh, I just forgot. Remember to be all prayed up before starting. <laughs> so tonight our passage is Mark 10, 17 to, 20, 17 to 31. And this saying is in the middle of the passage. So if you've never quite understood it, or if you've never been able to figure out how to accomplish it, or why Jesus might have said it, then you have lots of reason to pay attention but I won't draw pictures, any more pictures for you. And there will not be lubricant offered at the end of the service. So, um, would you pray with me before we get into it? God, thank you so much um, for this place, his love fellowship that we get to come together. Um, even though our building is not open for us right now, we are grateful um, for the hospitality of this place. And I pray that you would um, just not let us forget in the weeks that we are meeting here um, the hospitality of His Love Fellowship. I pray that as we are here tonight, that we would be reminded of you, reminded of your character, reminded of the importance of our community, scum of your church. And I pray that you would use. Um, my words, hopefully they will be your words, God. I pray I pray that they will be your words. That you would open our hearts and our minds um, to what you have for us. In your name I pray. 
Amen. So if you have a Bible, open it to Mark 10. If you don't and you want one, I think people at the Scoop can help you grab one. Um, Otherwise, it'll be up here. So, verse 17, starting there. This is right after um, Jesus teaching on divorce and the hard-heartedness of people and his accommodations for that um, with divorce and the importance of coming to him as little children um, with soft hearts. And so he's continuing on the way and he's continuing to teach. So it says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I want to pause right here because I want you to know about this word look, because it's really important for this passage. The word is not just meant like for me to look out and see your face or to see across the street at the house, it's a more intense look that I'm able to, or Jesus was able to look inside and see the motivations and the intentions of the man. So he looked at him and he loved him, which I think is just incredible because he saw all parts of who he was and he loved him. And then he said, one thing you lack, he said, Jesus said to him, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. I was looking up um, kind of the definition for the man's face falling and and him going away sad. And one of the definitions was giving it, um, it was alluding to like, having a dark cloud come over him and it being overcast. So it made me think of Eeyore, that he went away sad. Ho-hum. It's probably more serious than that. (laughs) But, um, But he went away sad. Jesus looked around, and this word looked is again the same kind of look as before. He looked around and said to the disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Okay, I'm going to stop because the man is asked about eternal life, and now Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. So I think we need to define some terms so that we're all on the same page. What does kingdom of God mean? What does it mean when we talk about eternal life? So It might be obvious to some, but we're just going to make sure we're all on the same page. Eternal life is when you die, where you go, heaven or hell, eternal life. So this guy wants eternal life with God. How do you do that? The kingdom of God is eternal life with God. And that represents the place and the time 
and the area. It's, it's all aspects of life. It's person, it's earth. It's God reigning over that. No more sin, no more disobedience, no more idolatry that God is reigning. So Jesus is saying that it's really hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, because I think he probably thought they needed to hear it twice. Sometimes I need to hear things twice. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So there are different theories about this camel. Um, one of them is that the word for camel is really, really close looking to the word for rope. So maybe it meant actually rope and they just mixed it up. But when we look at all the different, um, copies of text that we have, it's not, it doesn't hold up. Like it just, there's no evidence for that basically in all of the different texts we have when we look back. So it wasn't a mistake, meaning a different word. In addition, a rope fitting through the eye of a needle, that's still really hard because he's talking about like really big, thick rope and a really tiny needle. So it doesn't really help us either way. Um, The other option for what Jesus might have meant in verse 25 here is that there is a gate called the needle gate in the wall that surrounded Jerusalem. And it was really short. So the camel couldn't just walk right in. And so the camel had to take off, or the people had to take off the camel's burden. And the camel literally had to get down on its knees and like go through the gate like that to fit. So the idea with that interpretation is, is that we have to take off our burden and be humbled before God to enter the kingdom of God, which is not actually a bad thing. That's actually a really good encouragement to us. But the problem is, is that gate was built in like 900 AD, which is a long time after Jesus said this. So that doesn't really work either. Basically, Jesus was being sarcastic. That's it. There's no other, like, really big, you know, oh, there was this gate thing, and that's what he was referring to. Not at all. So when you see all those pictures, it's not really possible Jesus was being sarcastic. I just wanted you to know. Um, My favorite quote that I found on this, C.S. Lewis, all things are possible, it's true, but picture how the camel feels squeezed out in one long bloody thread from tail to snout. That's really gross. <laughs> I thought Mike would appreciate that I gave a shout out to C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and that's the only quote I could find. <laughs> All right, let's move on. So the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with human beings, this is impossible, 
but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up and he said, we have left everything to follow you. To be really honest with you, I'm not exactly sure the tone of Peter's voice when he said this. But when I read this and what Jesus says in following, it sounds like a plea. Like, I gave up everything for you. Doesn't that mean anything? You're telling me that with God, all things are possible, but not with human beings. That's impossible. But I gave up all this stuff. And I think we hear in Jesus' reply a bit of a, you are significant, and I have not forgotten what you have done. He says, truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus, I think, really wants Peter to know that their sacrifice of leaving their professions to follow him is significant. He's acknowledging that they did give up a lot. They gave up relationships. They gave up fields. So the ability to work, the ability to produce food. They gave up money. And Jesus' response is, you are going to get so much more by following me. And I think it's important for us to look. What does he say that we will get? Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, persecutions, and eternal life. So he's not color-coding it with rose glasses. There are persecutions. However, when we join the body of Christ, we get brothers, sisters, each other's homes, the openness of community, and the provision of God in the body of Christ, which is so much more than you as a single person could provide for yourself. God's economy is so different than ours. All right. So why, let's go back. Why did Jesus ask the man and the disciples, for that matter, to give up all their stuff? Why did he ask them to give up all their stuff? (laughs) As you consider this, I'm going to tell you a story, and it's not about a camel. In 1845, there was an expedition to the Arctic from England. I know, this is a bit of a stretch, but hang with me. It was an important exploration to investigate the Arctic, and part of the reason it was important was because it failed. You see, the preparations that were made for the trip, these people decided here's what they needed. They need a hand organ, a large library, 
glass cut goblets or, you know, cut glass goblets for drinking wine. Wine. China place settings. Sterling silver flatware that had each officer's initials and family crest on them. And in order to have room for all these things, they decided we just won't bring as much coal or as much food because these things are really important. Search parties found clumps of bodies of men who had set off to walk for help when their supplies ran out. One skeleton wore his fine blue cloth uniform with silk braiding, hardly a match for the minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit cold. Another was found carrying his engraved flatware. I was thinking, oh, that'd be really good to identify his body. One cannot imagine that these sailors had thought as they were freezing to death, oh, I wish I had brought more flatware. Our stuff can be quite a burden if we cart it around. And I liked this story because it was so extreme. How ridiculous to think that going to the Arctic, you would need flatware with your emblem on it. Do you think they did that so that people would know how important they were? (laughs) I kind of wonder if our stuff that we hold on to is where we find our identity. And that's why it's so important. Like this rich young ruler found his identity in his money, which is why when Jesus asked him to give it up, he wouldn't know who he was if he gave that up. So he went away sad because why would he want to lose who he was? The officers, I'm guessing, found their identity in beautiful, expensive things that showed their status, that showed it was almost like an image that they needed to upkeep. So... I have to wonder if this passage isn't exactly about money, but more about what keeps us in the place we're at and doesn't let us move where God might be asking us to go. What's the stuff that we find our identity in so much that we can't let it go because we don't know who we'd be if we didn't have those things or those people or that image because maybe we're not mercantile seafarers from England with silk braiding, but each one of us in here could stand up and say, this is my image. This is what I upkeep, whether, whether it be from the color of my toenails or my fingernails or the color of the clothes that I wear or the type of clothes that I buy. There's something that's upkept here. Like there are certain things that I don't have in my closet for a certain reason. And vice versa, there's certain things I have in my closet for a reason. Says something about who I am. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying, throw off your clothes, run naked, you know, give away all your money. Then you can follow me. I think he's saying more, examine, look into your heart 
as Jesus looked into the heart of the man and, and loved him and say, what is it? What is it that keeps you where you are? And that you can't follow Jesus when he says, come, follow me. I have so much more for you. It's not easy to think about giving up things. And I think the fact that verse 21, can we, can we go to verse 21? Verse 21 is for me, I've probably read this passage 30 times this week. And every time where he says, it's verse 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Right there at the top. When Jesus says, when it, when it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him, I'm in. It's like, wait, you saw who I was and then you loved me? Okay, I'll listen. And Jesus challenges this man because he loves him, not in order to love him, like so that he'll be better in order to love him. He loves him already. Jesus then says, one thing you lack. Isn't it interesting that in order to follow Jesus, he says, he says, one thing you lack. That means that he doesn't have something, but then he tells him to get rid of stuff. It's kind of backwards. How am I supposed to get rid of something when I already don't have enough? It's counterintuitive. Jesus is wise, though, in asking this man to make space for God because he knows how much he needs him. And it's in verse 27. Where Jesus says, with human beings, this is impossible, but not with God, all things are possible. And I think that this man went away because he didn't invite, he went away sad because he didn't ask God to help him give it up. That we aren't capable of giving up whatever it is we need to without God's help. About four months ago, Leonor Ortega Till, who's on staff, came to me and said, we need to have coffee. And I was like, all right, I'll have coffee with you. We usually get together and talk about her kiddos and women's ministry. And I don't know, we have a good time. We sit down. And immediately, I can tell by the look in her eye that this is not a normal conversation. Because she takes my hands across the table from me and kind of looks at me with like this forlorn, forlorn face. And I was like, what's wrong? And she said, I have to say something really hard to you. And my stomach just kind of like dropped to my toes, you know? And she said, you know how you've been helping out in the kitchen? Like you're there at 4.30 making sure that dinner's being cooked and then 
you're there till like 10, making sure that everything's cleaned up. And then you're there in between too. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really important because gosh, there's like so much that doesn't get done when I'm not there. And she goes, you need to stop helping in the kitchen. And I was like, what? Basically, she said, you are such a stress bucket that you are just not fun to be around. You don't come to worship. You don't sit with your boyfriend in worship. You're a pastor and you don't go to worship. And I was like, I know, but there's so much to be done in the kitchen. And she's like, yeah, and it can wait or somebody else can do it. You don't have to do it. And I sat for a minute and it was interesting because it made me reflect hard on why I was actually in the kitchen. And all of a sudden this like conviction hit me where I realized that I was serving in the kitchen because, well, it started out good. Because I saw this like need and so I was feeling this need and then it became Look at how good I am Like look at all the service I can do and then it became well I have a reputation now for being the kitchen woman I know everything that happens in the kitchen and everybody comes to me when they need to know something about the kitchen and I kind of like that So the next sunday i'm not in the kitchen And everything happened. Okay And I hadn't been in worship in like six weeks, and it was so good to be in worship. I think that Jesus wasn't pleased with my motives for serving in the kitchen, even though serving is a really good thing. I was doing it for the wrong reasons, and he knew it. And he thankfully used Leonor to kick my butt. Actually, she did it very gently, and I'm really grateful that she did it. And... There have been so many other people who have been able to serve in the kitchen that wouldn't have if I had been in there. So sometimes things need to be given up or taken away. Like I felt it was taken away from me. I really was banned from the kitchen. So what is it for you? What's your kitchen? I have looked at this passage and wondered, I think Jesus is pointing out two things that can be really distracting. First is money. And the second is relationships because at the end he talks so much about leaving brothers and sisters and all these people. And it got me thinking that relationships are, can be really distracting to our relationship with God, to even considering having a relationship with God. Whether it be dating, whether it be a really important friendship that you're kind of afraid, like, could get really messy or maybe is messy. Parents, all kinds of relationships. And I'm not necessarily saying you need to go out and sever relationships. I mean, I have not stopped going in the kitchen entirely. I go in the kitchen now. It's just different when I go in the kitchen. And I think it's about where our heart's at and where our motivation's at, not necessarily that we need to cut everything off all the time. So 
please consider that when God asks us to give up things, he's doing it lovingly because he wants to give us back a hundredfold, he says in this passage. But he wants to give us a better life. Because somehow the life that we give ourselves tends to fall apart. I don't know about you, but when I try to make my life a certain way or make my relationship a certain way without God's help, I tend to screw it up really bad. And when God is in it with me, it is so different. When God has given me the gift of relationship, when God has given me the gift of redemption in relationship, when God has given me provision in finances or possessions or a car or whatever that I need, it's because he loves me and because I am submitting to him and not trying to do it on my own. It's about God's all-sufficiency to provide for us and not about our sufficiency to provide for ourselves.